So, hello, welcome. <clears throat> I'm going to do the first part of the evening. Sharon's going to do the next part. Then I'm going to do another part, and it's going to go like that. <laughs> but first, is I'd like to introduce us. My name is Steve Armstrong. And to my left is uh, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein. <laughs> and colleagues, <laughs> and uh, Sharon uh, Salzberg, uh, Stephen Smith. And to Stephen's right is Annie Nugent sitting on the floor and Damaruan. And uh, Annie and Damaruan are uh, students of ours who we feel have uh, uh, substantial depth of practice and uh, sincerity of commitment to the Dharma, and uh, we've selected them or chosen them to train with us uh, to become uh, teachers and share the Dharma. So they will be both assisting us and observing some of our teaching, and uh, there may be opportunities for you to uh, speak with them also. But just so you know who they are, any Nujint and Damaruan. So now Sharon is going to... Take the next step. Hey there. Boy, you missed an amazing manager's talk. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> we went from ticks to snakes. <laughs> to, no, poison oak. Went from ticks to poison oak to snakes to mountain lions. It was really exciting. attention. <laughs> Boy, it made me think of Manhattan. <laughs> really longingly. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's fantastic to be here. And uh, <laughs> really. <laughs> and I'd, I'd like to welcome you all. I think it's, it is an amazing thing in this time in our society for people to come together uh, to make a friend of silence, to practice letting go, to have the very radical experience of being willing to see themselves and for all of us seeing our connection to one another and to life itself in a very different way, to let go of the convenient and the conventional and the familiar and to have that kind of willingness. It's an amazing adventure, really. I wanted to start with this quotation from the Taoist philosopher Chuang Tzu who said, There was a person so displeased by the sight of their own shadow and so displeased with their own footsteps that they determined to get rid of both. The method they hit upon was to run away from them, so they got up and ran. But every time they put their foot down, there was another step, while the shadow kept up with them without the slightest difficulty. They attributed their failure to the fact that they were not running fast enough. So they ran faster and faster without stopping till they finally dropped dead. They failed to realize that if they merely stepped into the shade, the shadow would vanish. And if they sat down and stayed still, there would be no more footsteps. I think of meditation practice as that courageous choice to be still rather than running away the choice to develop a relationship with what is rather than look the other way or try to repackage it or deny what might be going on. It's a very courageous act. Not because it is so so much of a strain to do, but because it's so different. I know a lot of you have a great deal of experience in doing meditation practice, and many of you have no experience in doing meditation practice. And in some funny way, it doesn't matter. Because we all come together, hopefully with the same kind of of interest and curiosity, rather than being jaded or having a lot of expectations. It's the very classic phrase in Buddhist teaching of beginner's mind. I once had a funny experience with our Burmese teacher, Saira Upandita, who came to Barry, Massachusetts, where we have the center 
the Insight Meditation Society in 1984. So when he came, I had been practicing quite ardently and devotedly for just about 14 years. I'd gone to India first in 1970 um, to learn how to meditate. Now, Saito Upandita had a reputation as an extremely profound and wonderful teacher of meditation. He also had a kind of teaching device, a method where we would see him six days a week to describe our meditation practice to him. And he had this tendency to repeat exactly the same thing day after day after day until something tended to shift inside the person. And then he would go on to something else. So I would go in to see him and describe something in my meditation practice, and he would look at me and he would say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I thought, I'm not a beginner. I've been practicing for 14 years. What do you mean in the beginning it can be like that? And that would be all he said. And then I'd leave. I'd come in the next day and perhaps describe something completely different. And he would look at me and he would say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd think, I'm not a beginner. (laughs) I felt at one point as though there were a giant neon 14 flashing in my brain at him saying, I've been practicing for 14 years. I'm not a beginner. I'd come in the next day and say something different still. And he'd look at me and say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I left one day thinking, why did we bring him all the way from Burma? <laughs> you know, he never says anything. You know, he's supposed to be such a great teacher. Why doesn't he teach me anything? And one day, it was like something shifted inside of me. And I thought, oh, you know, that's not an insult. It's actually good to be a beginner, not to have all of those expectations. Well, this happened last year. It should be done by now or... Yesterday I had a little bit of bliss, so today I should have ten times more. To really not know and to be okay with that, to have the tenderness of that and the vulnerability of that and the open-heartedness of that, to step forward into the unknown, to meet it. It's a beautiful state to be a beginner. So, of course, the day that I had that insight was the day he stopped saying that and he just went on to some other thing. But hopefully, ideally, we all come here together right now as beginners to, if anything, deepen that sense of wonder, that kind of connection and interest that we can have. We come together to have a very practical experience, even though many, if not most, of the the images and the metaphors and the ideas, the stories that we tell are rooted in uh, the teachings of the Buddha. We come here not with a sense of trying to adopt a dogma or a set of beliefs in any way, but rather to use this extraordinary circumstance to deepen our own understanding, our own concentration, our own mindfulness, our own compassion. It's an amazing opportunity. We don't have to adapt or adopt the ideas of others. We don't have to take anything, a kind of blind faith. But to use the tools in a very open-hearted way to see what we might discover for ourselves. There's a wonderful line from this theologian, Howard Thurman, who said, look at the world with quiet eyes, which I loved. Look at the world with quiet eyes. Think about how we normally are. It's like, you know, those cartoon characters you see whose eyes are on springs, you know, and they're just out there. We're so fevered a lot of the time, trying to hold on and trying to push away that we don't even know what's happening. This is how we lose a sense of intimacy with our own lives. We, we feel so disconnected because our reactions are so quick. We don't necessarily have the the time and the space, that feeling, to connect. And here we are, with nothing else to do. It's quite amazing. 
We look at the world with quiet eyes, not to be passive or complacent or to, to lose energy, but because there's a whole other kind of learning when we are close to our experience, when we're open to it, when we're with one another in a different way. There's a beautiful line from William Stafford, the poet, who said, The things you do not have to say make you rich. Saying the things you do not have to say weakens your talk. Hearing the things you do not need to hear dulls your hearing. The things you know before you hear them, this is you. And this is the reason that you are in the world. I often think of a retreat experience as just that, not having to say the things we really don't have to say. To come to know the things we already do know before we hear them. We know so much. There's so much wisdom. There's so much potential to understand our lives that we hardly trust. So we come together in a way to to nurture that. It's really quite incredible. We come together in a way that really empowers each one of us. When I first went to India to learn meditation, one of my early teachers, a man named Manindra, who is awfully good with one-liners, said something quite important for me. He said, The Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. <laughs> and it's hard to convey just the tone of voice in which he said that, because it was actually it was very kind and encouraging. When he said that, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. I felt probably for the first time in my life somebody was looking at me with that kind of conviction that I could solve my problem. I could solve the problem of the unhappiness and the confusion that had brought me to India to begin with. We can solve our problem. This is something we're all capable of. One of the most beautiful things about the teachings of the Buddha is its tremendous inclusiveness. The Buddha said that everybody, every living being, has a potential, has a capacity within to not just live mechanically, not to be driven by the strictures of habit, to be free, to understand their lives, to connect, to care, to have love, to have compassion, that this is a potential or a capacity we all have, innate. It's not just for the special few, the talented ones, or the ones who you know, are really lucky and have very easy kind of lives. Everybody he said, has these kinds of potentials within. And the tools exist, the, the techniques exist for bringing that potential to life, for making it real, not just a delightful kind of thought like, gee, I have a great potential. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? But to, to make it a, a living, vibrant, vivid part of every moment of our lives. These are the tools. The tools are what we practice here. We practice developing and strengthening concentration. Most of us experience ourselves as being kind of fragmented. And you'll see when we practice, those of you who haven't practiced before, it becomes very obvious (laughs) A very common tool for the beginning or the foundation of meditation practice, which is where we'll begin also, is to sit and pay attention to the feeling of the breath, the natural feeling of the in and out breath. You'd think it's easy enough, you know, that you could sit and be with 758 breaths in a row, no problem. But mostly what we experience is that It's just a few. And then we are gone. Our minds jump back into the past to some time when 
Maybe we did something that we now regret or we blurted something out that was really foolish or there was a time when we didn't have the courage to speak out and we really should have and our minds just go there. Or we're sitting here and a few breaths later our minds jump into the future. What was that about ride coordination? You know, what time should I leave? Or where should I stop on the way home? Or next year, when I'm in India, you know, we're just gone. In fact, the Burmese teacher, Sairu Pandita, has a kind of trick question he asks people, which is, about how many breaths can you be with before your mind starts to wander? It's sort of a trick question because they believe a good answer is two or three or one because they feel it takes a good degree of mindfulness to notice that. If you say, oh, I can be with the breath for 45 minutes and my mind never wanders, they think you are so lost in space that (laughs) it's just you're gone. This is what we notice. We're all over the place. But over time... As we realize we're distracted, we start over, we gather our attention back, we lose it again, we start over again. Over time, it's like our minds get more concentrated. There's more stability. There's more strength. If you think about the last time you meditated or even the last time you sat down to think something through, to work out a dilemma of some kind, And feel your way into how much energy got wasted. Jumping into the past and jumping into the future and speculation and judgment. And imagine just gathering all that energy back to return it to yourself. That's a lot of energy. What I've always considered so ironic is that it's our own energy. It's something we are quite capable of, but we fling it all over the place. So we gather it back and we gather it back. The path of concentration in Buddhist teaching is considered both the path of power, because that's a lot of energy that we can use. It's very empowering. And it's also considered the path of healing. Because just as in like that example of my hands moving together in this sense of gathering our energy back, it's a movement toward wholeness toward integration of our being, toward centeredness. It's healing. So we practice concentration. We practice the skills of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the quality of awareness that connects very strongly to what actually is happening without adding to it based on our fears, our desires, our projections, into the future, our speculation. is a very powerful way to begin to see the world. To look at the world with quiet eyes will reveal quite a lot. Usually we're so busy that we just don't have the time to feel the actual reality of what's going on. And we forget the tremendous relativity of life. Our reactions are so fast and so strong often that we think the reaction is wedded to the circumstance or or the experience rather than understanding it as a conditioned element. For example, I was just in Seattle um, teaching last weekend and I told a story about the last time I was in Seattle, which was six months ago. I was staying with a local uh, meditation teacher there, an old friend named Rodney. I was standing in his house and about to go out, and I said, Rodney, do I need my umbrella? And he said, no, it's not raining. So I went outside, and it was raining. So I looked at him, and I said, Rodney? And he said, oh, we don't consider that rain in Seattle. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) you know. There's great relativity in life. If somebody did something in the middle of this room, some of us would be frightened, others might be amused, some would feel compassion, some might be angry. There's not just one inevitable response to every incident. 
but we need to come very close to what's happening to realize that, to have the space. And then we can make a conscious choice rather than just to be driven by the habits of our mind. That's mindfulness. To all those times in our life when we're only kind of there, we can come fully alive. I had a friend who uh, many years ago was quite ill and he almost died. He was normally quite a healthy person, but he came down with this rare form of pneumonia and then um, he was in the hospital and then he got better. So I was home in Massachusetts one day and he called me and left a message. When I reached for the phone to call him back, strangely enough, a mutual friend of ours called and I said, well, I can't really talk to you right now because I have to call this other person. And the person I was talking to said, well, did you know he almost died? And I said, yeah, I did. And then I hung up And strangely enough, the phone rang again with another mutual friend of ours on the phone. And I said, well, I can't really talk to you right now because I have to call this other person. And the person on the other end of the line said, well, did you know he almost died? And I said, yeah, I did. And then I hung up and finally I got my friend and I said to him, I'm going to dub you he who almost died. And he said, well, how do you mean that? Do you mean that in the sense that I was so severely ill and, you know, things were kind of shaky and then I got better? And we went through that, and finally he said, you know, the best way of understanding that is that we can live our whole lives without really living it. We can live our whole lives without ever being really alive. One who almost died is also one who perhaps never really lived. So we live as fully as we can. That's the opportunity that we have. But think about how we spend a day. We spend a day lost in the future or lost in the past pushing away a lot of what's happening, trying to hold on to the rest and strategizing how we can keep it from changing, missing a tremendous amount of our experience when it's just ordinary or neutral, a breath, a sound, a taste of tea. We're gone. It's like we're not really here. There's a beautiful line from the Buddha when he said, Those who are heedful or those who are mindful are on the path to the deathless. Those who are heedless or those who are mindless are as if dead already. The mindfulness allows us to come awake, come alive. We can be present no matter what is happening. And we practice the skill of compassion. We practice the very radical transformation of how we treat ourselves, how we relate to ourselves. So, for example, say you're with the breath for half a breath and your mind is gone. What happens when you realize, oh, it's been quite some time since I last felt a breath? In that moment, can we be gentle? rather than chastising ourselves or punishing ourselves, berating ourselves, can we let go with some compassion, some ability to forgive ourselves? Can we gather our energy back? Can we begin again? I often think one of the reasons I love meditation practice so much is that the really big life lessons happen in these itty-bitty little packages. And if you said to somebody, I sat down, I felt a few breaths, my mind wandered, I brought it back, They'd say, so what? I mean, really, what's the big deal? But that is a huge thing. Because what we are practicing deeply 
is the ability to start over, the ability to make a mistake and forgive ourselves, the ability to lose sight of our aspiration and begin over again, the ability to make mistakes and have some compassion. Those are huge changes. That's what we're actually practicing. Meditation practice is very simple to describe, but it's not so easy to do. Largely because of this, and because of our tendency to judge ourselves incessantly. It would be easier if we said, well, the goal is to go from two breaths to 758 breaths. Then we could really measure it. But the qualities that are really what the meditation practice is about, they're measureless. To say, well, I let go more gently. There was more patience. I had a better sense of humor. There was more spaciousness with the things that came and went. It's very hard to discern hour after hour. And so the best thing is to stop evaluating and checking and judging all of the time. That's the challenge is to undertake this really like an adventure and to know you will go through many, many, many kinds of experiences and it's all okay. It's another aspect of inclusion. Not only are all beings included in this great potential for living a different kind of life, but every aspect of our experience is included in the practice of concentration and mindfulness and loving kindness or compassion. Everything is part of it. There's no experience you can have that's wrong. That's sort of a sign of irredeemable failure. It doesn't matter. Because what's happening in the practice is far less important than how we're relating to what's happening in the practice. That's really hard to believe given our tendency to judge all the time. But there's not a wrong experience to be having. And you will go through everything. It would be very weird if you didn't. I have a friend who sat this retreat last year who's from another part of California. And in the beginning, well, usually the very beginning is really hard. It's really, really hard. Everyone is sleepy and restless, and it's just an adjustment to be here. It's inevitable, no matter how much practice you've had. Unless you live a very unusual life, this is different. You know, we're slowing down. We're being quiet. Your mind will just conk out. It'll want to go to sleep, or you'll plan. And You know, it takes a while for that to even out. Some. So if you experience that, don't worry about it. So my friend went through the normal angst of the beginning of the retreat, and then she decided that she was the happiest she had ever been in her life, and she was going to move here. <laughs> so that was a few days. And then she decided that the teachers were all completely untrustworthy, and her phrase was, these people should be arrested, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So then she went through that. (laughs) And then it's like everything. It's all of life. What we don't want to do is get stuck from any one perspective and say, oh, this is great or this is horrible. But to understand it will be everything. I often liken meditation practice to going into an old attic room and turning on the light. What we see is everything. We see these beautiful, wondrous treasures. They're so beautiful, we can hardly believe they exist in our very own attic. And we see these dusty, neglected corners, and we think, oh, I better clean that up. And we see these very disconcerting objects, and we think, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that still doing here? We see everything, and that's appropriate. There's no wrong experience. And so we practice qualities of concentration, mindfulness, compassion, gentleness, patience, openness, connectedness. That's what we're really doing throughout that whole range of experience. 
Traditionally, we begin retreats with what are called the taking of refuge and the undertaking of the five precepts that help establish the context with which we come together here, within which we do this very uh, deep work. The three classic refuges are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, Dharma or Dhamma in Pali. We take refuge not as an act of um, kind of declaring ourselves Buddhists or, or as an act of allegiance of any particular identification, but as a reminder to step out of our sense of limitation, the confines of our own fear, to dare to imagine that we can move, we can grow. We take refuge in the Buddha not just as an act of respect to the historical figure, but as a recognition that the Buddha was a human being, that he cultivated the power of awareness, the power of loving kindness, and so on, as a human being, to come to that depth of understanding of the nature of life. And for me, whenever I think of the Buddha, right from the beginning of my time in India, I thought of him as an integrated being. When I talked about being fragmented a little while ago, you think about how much of our lives are kind of disparate and torn apart, where we might be one person when we're at work and a completely different person with our families, or we're fine, we're full of loving kindness and tenderness when we're all alone. But, you know, once we're with other people, we're, we're you know, in a terrible state. Or we're fine when we're with other people and we're afraid to be alone. That's how most of us are. You know, so I took a look at the Buddha and I saw somebody who was just one being. He was who he was. Whether he was alone or he was with others, whether he was still or he was wandering around India teaching, with the threads of the things he really cared about, the things he was, you know, of wisdom and compassion and so on, sustaining him in all those different circumstances. That's what the Buddha meant to me. It's that sense of possibility. That's what we affirm in taking refuge. The Dharma or the Dhamma is the path. It's a way. It also means the truth, the nature of things. We take refuge in the power of that path, the power of uncovering the truth, the truth of our own experience, the truth of our connection to one another, the truth of our connection to life. And the Sangha means community. It means the community, first of all, of uh, traditionally of monks and nuns who have preserved the teachings of the Buddha, from the time of the Buddha until now. It means the community of beings, of men and women and children who from the beginning of time have taken the risk to live in a more profound way, who have realized the truth for themselves, who have embodied it in their own lives. And in a contemporary sense, it means the community of all of us who've gathered here together. Those who, who come together with this kind of intention, we can take refuge in, in the power of the community to realize that we're not alone and that in some very meaningful way, the spiritual work, the inner work we do could never be for ourselves alone. Inevitably, it is about how we live with one another. So it's the three refuges. And then we undertake what are known as the five precepts, which are the guidelines, the ethical guidelines that um, form in some way, it's like the bedrock of this community, to be able to be here together in safety, in mutual respect, in compassion. I know some of you have heard me tell the story about how many, many years ago when... um, the Insight Meditation Society wasn't all that old. Um, And in those days, of course, meditation was a little bit of a peculiar activity in this culture. 
I'd come back from India and for years people would say to me, well, what do you do for a living? And I would say, well, I teach meditation. And they would kind of sidle away. <laughs> now, it's very different, but you know, it was that way for a long time. And, and there was a whole period when our friends, our contemporaries who'd maybe gone to Asia at the same time we did and come back, were having a great deal of difficulty with their parents who were very frightened and hostile about what their children were doing. And so somebody had the idea one day that we should gather these hostile, frightened people together and have a retreat for them, which we did. It was called the Parents' Course. And uh, it was marked by a lot, but I mean, one example would be uh, we knew that they could never bear the bizarre social uh, thing of eating a meal without speaking. So we didn't have silent meals, and we ate with them so that people would feel more comfortable. And the first morning, um, this woman sitting opposite Joseph at the breakfast table looked at him and said, you've kidnapped my daughter and you've brainwashed her, and it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> so that was kind of the feeling tone of the course. Um, at least in the beginning. Actually, they went through lots of changes. It was a very different group of people who left at the end, but that's how it felt like in the beginning. And the thing I remember the most was people taking all of their belongings into the meditation hall <laughs> because they were so afraid to leave them in their rooms. You know, people come in these piles of things and stacks of things and just, you know, because that's how they live. That's how most of us live. And they would always lock their doors. And we didn't have any keys. You know, they'd lock their doors behind them by pressing some button, and then they couldn't get back in, you know. So we'd be running around looking for a master key, you know. And it was so striking that that's how most of us live all of the time, and not unreasonably so. And you think, what an amazing thing to come together intentionally to create a community where that is not how we have to be. A community that is based instead of how most of the world is, instead of on greed and grasping and fear, on respect and compassion. And so that's the nature of the five precepts which we undertake for the duration of this retreat. Um, they are the precept not to kill, not to hurt or harm any living being, not to steal, not to take that which has not been offered, um, not to commit sexual misconduct, which in the context of the retreat means to refrain from sexual activity altogether. Instead, to use all of one's energy in um, this kind of practice of, of understanding the nature of everything that comes up in our minds, in our hearts, without necessarily having to act on it. We undertake a precept to refrain from lying, which again in retreat is expanded to mean the undertaking of silence, which was spoken about in the manager's talk. We're always available, um, you know, when we come together in groups or individually, you don't have to be silent with us, you're, you know, you're free to talk, and there, there are lots of times for questions and things like that. But between yourselves and even in writing notes, it's an amazing thing to go inside and not to be living in reference to other people. Sometimes when people think about a retreat, the thing that they're most afraid of or disconcerted by is the idea of silence. And sometimes people say, you know, everyone in my office took like a bedding pool that I wouldn't be able to be silent for nine days or something like that. But most commonly at the end of the retreat, it's the single element that people point back to as having been the most beautiful it's like for once in our lives, we can just be ourselves and we can be quiet. We don't have to present ourselves to anybody else as special or important or stupid or anything. We can just have our own experience and learn to trust it. So we ask you not to speak to one another, not to write you know, extensive notes to one another to go deep into your own experience, which is a beautiful thing. And as an extension of that, we also ask you not to read. It's another way of 
for many people, including myself, um, it's a way of really thinking about someone else's experience rather than one's own. It's so much easier just to, you know, read on and on and on what someone else has written about their, their practice or their life or their, their spiritual heart. But to come back to one's own experience is more the point. And we undertake a precept to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind or create heedlessness is the, is the direct translation. It means drugs, recreational drugs, not medicinal drugs, and alcohol. Again, to use this time to see what we discover through the sheer power of the mind that is innate, that is inherent, and not to be distorting that perception through other, other agents. So now again, I'll turn this over to Steve. Um, and we'll formally undertake the refuges and the precepts, have a, a very short sitting um, and break for the evening. So why don't we take a couple of minutes just to stand and stretch and get yourself some physical relief. And then we'll formally take the refuges and precepts. As Sharon mentioned, as a way of formally opening the retreat and as a reminder of what we're doing here and our commitment to being here, we'll take the refuges and the precepts. And we like to offer them in Pali, the language of the Buddha, as a way of reminding ourselves, but also connecting with the larger community of men and women, monks and nuns, who have taken these refuges and precepts every day for the last 2,500 years as they have been engaged in the practices that we'll be engaged in. So in that way, we connect with thousands, tens of thousands of others in other parts of the world that are today also doing what we're doing and also connecting with the millions, really, of beings over the 2,500 years who have found this path of practice useful in their lives. So what I'll do is chant one phrase and ask you to repeat it after me. We'll pay homage to the Buddha. We'll take the refuges three times, and we'll take the precepts, followed by a dedication. So... Um, maybe tomorrow we'll get some chant sheets so that you can see the words and the translation of that. But for this evening, we'll just do it verbally. And then we'll sit for a few minutes after that. Okay, so please repeat after me. Namo Namo Tassa Bhagavato Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Arahato Samma Sambodasa Samma Sambodasa Namo 
namo tassa bhagavato tassa bhagavato arahato arahato samma sambodasa samma sambodasa namo namo tassa bhagavato tassa bhagavato arahato arahato samma sambodasa Sama sambodasa bodang saranangga cami bodang saranangga cami tamang saranangga cami tamang saranangga cami sanghang saranangga cami sanghang saranangga cami Tutiampi bodang saranangga cami Tutiampi bodang saranangga cami Tutiampi damang saranangga cami Tutiampi damang saranangga cami Tutiampi sanghang saranangga cami Tutiampi sanghang saranangga cami Tatiampi bodang saranangga cami Tatiampi bodang saranangga cami Tatiampi damang saranangga cami Tatiampi damang saranangga cami Tatiampi sanghang saranangga cami Tatiampi sanghang saranangga cami Panatipata Panatipata Weramani Weramani Sika Badang Sika Badang Zamariami Mariami Adina Dana Adinadana Weramani Weramani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samariyami Mariyami Hapramacharya Hapramacharya Weramani Weramani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samariyami Mariyami Musawada Musawada Weramani Weramani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samariyami Mariyami Sura Meriya Sura Meriya Majapamadatana Majapamadatana Weramani Weramani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Irang me silang Irang me silang Magapalanyanasa Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Pachayo Tu Settling into the balanced sitting posture where you feel grounded and at ease in the body. Letting your attention flow throughout the body to release any holding, tightness. Settling on to your sitting bones. Relaxing the body. Awakening the mind. When you feel at ease in the body, notice where you feel the breath most distinctly. Maybe the belly or the chest or the nostrils. 
let your attention rest there, noticing the movements in the body or the sensations of the breath. And as much as possible, letting everything else fade into the background of your attention without trying to get rid of it or push it away. Instead, let the breath come into the foreground of your attention. And as you breathe in, feeling the movements in the belly or the chest or the sensations at the nostrils, as you breathe in, feeling it, Know that you're breathing in. And when you breathe out, carefully feeling that, know that you're breathing out. Letting the breath be natural or normal, however it is for you, whether it's deep or shallow, quick, or long, distinct, or diffuse, really doesn't matter. However you experience it is okay. When you breathe in, know that you're breathing in. When you breathe out, know that you're breathing out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.